Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 178 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering your weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, stick around to the end, because we're going to have your feedback on our recent episode on The Son of Sam. But first... Uh, the two-part episodes on the Son of Sam. That's right. It was a really great one. So since this is a fifth Friday in October, we don't want to leave you without an episode this week. And so we bring you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. So, Jimmy, what weird questions will you be answering this time? We're going to be talking about superhero guardian angels, the Ark of the Covenant, whether Judas is in hell, whether pizza rolls are in heaven, and how Neanderthals relate to creation and other weird questions. So without further ado, here are the weird questions. Full of gratitude for all the support people have given us uh, in recent days. Here we go with weird questions for Jimmy Aiken. Ron L., Asking by email, ask, is it possible that some sort of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey way that the transfiguration when Jesus met Moses and Elijah, it was the same meaning as Exodus 34 and 1 Kings 19, and since Moses looked, looked while Elijah didn't, that was the reason Moses' face shined while Elijah's didn't. This is a weird question. It's got a little bit of time travel in it. It's got a reference mm-hmm. to uh, Doctor Who, and it's got the transfiguration and two instances from the Hebrew scriptures where Moses and Elijah met the Lord. What do you make of it? So when when you say, is it possible, possible has different meanings. Um, is it hypothetically possible? Well, sure. God can, you know, space and time are not absolutes. And so God could cross connect different points in space and time if he wanted. Um, And consequently, it would be ontologically possible and physically possible for God to do this. But then there's what's possible in terms of the evidence. You know, what does the evidence suggest? Does the evidence support this? And it looks like the evidence doesn't, uh, at least according to my reading, the in the in the uh, accounts of the transfiguration, we have Jesus and Moses and Elijah all on the mountain together with the disciples there um, seeing them. Uh, apparently in a vision, uh, seeing Moses and Elijah in a vision. And the three of them have a conversation because Moses and Elijah are talking about Jesus and what he's going to be doing. And so we see them interacting. And the strong suggestion is that the three of them are face to face. But that's not what we see in the account where Moses meets the Lord, because he, uh, in in keeping with the uh, 
thought systems at the time, you know, you couldn't see God and live. And so when God has his glory pass in front of Moses, he only gets to see God from behind. And that oh. seems different than what's happening with Moses and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. Also, when Elijah like hides his face, well, he's hiding his face. He's not having a conversation with Jesus face to face, which is what seems to be happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. So I would say, although it's possible, I don't think it's likely that that's the case. That's not what the evidence seems to suggest. But people seem to be wondering about this because not only did I get email from Rob L. about this, but someone was asking this on Twitter today and someone said, oh, you should ask Jimmy Aiken. And, wow. and I said, I'll be by coincidence, I'll be answering this on today's Weird Question show. Uh, do you think part of the interest people have in it is they just want to say wibbly wobbly timey wimey because they know uh, you're... that's that's part of. I'm sure that's part of it, yeah. at least in Rob L's case. And it is not good of you to catch that Doctor Who reference because I showed you that episode of Doctor Who once. That was the episode Blink with the Weeping Angels. Yes, you are the, the man who introduced me to Doctor Who, and I and I um and I really enjoyed Doctor Who a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a really good episode. Uh, Mark's next with another a weird question for Jimmy Aiken. Uh, what role do you think a guardian angel might play in the life of a superhero? And then he follows that with Nightcrawler is Catholic. Yeah, and Nightcrawler is Catholic, and he's far from the only Catholic superhero. There are others, too. For example, uh, the Huntress in Gotham City is also Catholic, as is Daredevil in uh, New York. And so there are a bunch of Catholic superheroes. But regardless of whether they're Catholic or not, I think the guardian angels in a, the life of a superhero are going to be extra active because they get in a lot more danger. They get in a lot of dicey situations where they have to evaluate, do I use violence here? And how do I protect innocent lives? And so um, it, I think guardian angels in the case of superheroes are gonna uh, really need to, need to have their A game. <laughs> I guess that's true. I guess that's true. You know, I, for some reason I had the feeling Batman was Catholic, but is, is there something? Bat, Batman is ambiguous. They oh. don't really say he seems to either be Catholic or Episcopalian, but oh, they, yeah. they haven't really settled that one. Uh, all right. I got another weird question for you, uh, Jimmy Aiken. Okay. It's not that weird, though, because it involves J.R.R. Tolkien and they're not. That's not that weird. Uh, would prayers or sacraments? Oh, this is from Ron, by the way. Would prayers or sacraments be valid in a fictional language like Elvish? Now, he qualifies. Elvish is unique because, A, it's a functioning language with grammar and syntax, not merely gibberish, which I feel like might be a stab at the people who speak Klingon, but that's no, a functioning no, 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 language, no. too. Klingon I, is a functioning language, I just yes. don't want Ron getting uppity, like, oh, the Tolkien languages are better. Uh, but his B point, I'm, I'm sorry, Ron, if I read into that what I shouldn't have. If I read into that uncharitably, I apologize. His B point is J.R.R. Tolkien actually composed several elvish prayers, such as the Our Father and the Hail Mary. Well, then he didn't compose them. He just translated well, them. That's translated composing, them. yes. And and they've also been translated into other languages, including Klingon. Um, so you can say the rosary in Klingon if you want. The, also, there is a famous text from the Bible from Genesis. It's called the Babel text because it's the account of Babel. And it's a classic passage that when you're translating into a new language, you do the Babel text. 
where oh, the yeah. languages get diversified. And so uh, linguists for fun translate the Babel text into different languages. But in terms of Ron's questions, so uh, first of all, we've got prayer and prayer. You don't even have to use language for a prayer to be valid. Um, as St. Paul mentions in Romans 8, we often don't know how we need to pray and the spirit helps us with inexpressible groanings. And so even if you're just, even if you're not sure what you're praying for, but you just have this need that you're feeling and you bring it before God, God understands that need better than you do. Oh, And yeah. so, so, you know, just bringing it before God, even if you can't articulate it, that's a valid prayer. Um, and so you don't even need, need language. You don't need to verbalize a prayer for it to be valid. Uh, God can still respond to it. And so if you have a language, whether it's a private language that only you speak, or it's got a small community of language users, it's God knows what you're saying. And so, it, you know, he, he can answer your request. The trickier question comes with the sacraments. And there can be kind of an impulse to say, ooh, maybe we need a substantial community of native speakers or something in order for to do a sacrament right. in a language. I mean, that's something you at least want to entertain as a possibility, which is what Ron is entertaining. But how many do you need? Well, now, the Holy See will only approve translations into major languages. I mean, they if, if there's a community of 100 people somewhere that speak something, they, they're probably not going to, you know, take the time to translate that and approve the translation of the mass, let's say, right. um, because those 100 people are going to speak something else or they're an uncontacted, unevangelized people who aren't interested in the sacraments. But um, if they would, if the Holy See has approved a translation that would presuppose that it is valid to have sacrament in that language. And so we can get some guidance by looking at languages that have been translated, even if uh, and have been approved for the mass, even if it doesn't have a large community of native speakers. And the example I would cite here is. Esperanto. Esperanto okay. is an artificial language, so it doesn't have to be a natural language. It, Esperanto is an artificial language. It was deliberately created to be a kind of international language and, you know, build bridges between different cultures. It's based on a number of different European languages. And um, all of the popes from St. Pius X onward have supported the Esperanto movement, even though nobody speaks this as their native language. In 1977, Vatican Radio began broadcasting regularly in Esperanto, and since 1998, they've been doing it three times a week. In 1990, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments approved an Esperanto translation of the Mass. So we have an Esperanto Missal and Lectionary uh, for Sundays and Feast Days that was published in 1995. In 1994, St. John Paul II began, you know, how he, he does uh, greetings in different languages. 
at Easter and Christmas? Well, he started doing Esperanto greetings at those times, and Pope Benedict XVI then kept up that tradition. So you've got a good bit of support from the Vatican, including, crucially, the translation of the Mass into Esperanto. Yeah. Uh, which implies it's valid, even though Esperanto does not have a large community of native speakers. And so the Holy See, and they also, you know, would check with the congregation for the doctrine of the faith before doing that. So the Holy See's attitude is that it doesn't seem to need a large community of native speakers, just some people who speak it, at least as a second language. And so if... Um, you got a community of people wanting to use different dialects of Elvish or Klingon as a way of building bridges between people of different cultures oh, and right. promoting peace and stuff. I'd love to see the pro-peace Klingon language movement <laughs> um, then, uh, or the Elvish for that matter. They're, they can be pretty, pretty uh, aggressive in battle. They can be a little um, snippy, those elves. Yeah, They're well, in any there. event. If you if you got a community that was using these artificial languages to build bridges, they might attract the attention and approval of the Holy See the way Esperanto did. I hope we get just because I love to hear Carlo speak Pig Latin. I hope we get a little more uh, use of Pig Latin. You can do Pig Latin, uh, Jimmy. Well, Carlo, fairly well Car Carlo is hilarious uh do it uh -huh. and you of course know where that comes from that comes from the catholic answers game show where um yeah i would have to read an answer in pig latin as yeah. an option of a lifeline for people yeah the best is carlo mm -hmm. because it's particularly uh to see a person who is uh competent in so many things as a musician and as a scholar and all that to be I don't want to say this in a hurtful way, but to be incompetent at something is kind of fun. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's humanizing. Yeah, humanizing, right, for Carlo. Uh, let's go. Uh, here's and another. For all of us. Here's another um, uh, weird question for you. I think we've asked you this one before. Mark wants to know, where is the Ark of the Covenant? I don't know why he thinks you would know. Or maybe, Jimmy, you could do a Mysterious World episode on it. I bet you already have. I haven't yet. I will. I haven't yet. But you can look forward to that. So uh, clearly the Ark of the Covenant uh, is being studied by top men. We've got top men is, on it. Yep. Is currently housed in a warehouse, uh, maybe Warehouse 13. I don't know. Um, but setting fiction aside, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's possible it may not exist anymore. Some people have speculated that the Ark of the Covenant may have been destroyed by the Babylonians, but I don't buy that. If it had been destroyed, the authors of the Old Testament would mention it because they do talk about what um, the Babylonians did when they captured Jerusalem and destroyed the temple on Tisha B'Av. Oh, day right, the day we just talked about. We, we just talked about recently. The uh, It talks about how they took various artifacts from the temple back to Babylon with them because they were holy artifacts. I mean, they didn't disbelieve in the God of Israel. Uh, and so, I mean, they were polytheists. They accepted all kinds of gods. And so it's like, OK, we've got this. Uh, the, the, we conquered this people. Uh, we're taking their holy stuff now. 
and bringing it back to Babylon. And they they preserved it. They didn't like melt down the candles, you know, the menorah or anything like that. Um, so if they had taken the Ark, it would be mentioned alongside the other artifacts that the Old Testament authors mentioned the Babylonians taking. So I don't think it was destroyed. The evidence we have, therefore, suggests that a, that it it was hidden. It was before the temple was destroyed. They managed to get the ark out and took it somewhere. Now the question is where in Ethiopia there is a tradition that the ark was taken there, and according to some versions of the story, like King Solomon gave the ark to the queen of Sheba when she visited and asked him weird questions for King Solomon. Um, but I don't buy that at all. There's no way Solomon would give the ark to a foreign queen. No, that, and right. yeah. And also the, we know the ark was there after Solomon's time. So it was there until the Babylonian exile and then it disappeared. I think what the Ethiopians have, because they have a church in Axum that is reputed to house the Ark, and they apparently do have an artifact in there. What I think it is and what the evidence supports it being is a replica of the Ark that was made at a later date. And then eventually people's memories, they would venerate this replica and then people's memories got fuzzy and they stopped realizing, oh, it's just a replica because they were treating it as a holy object. The, according to other accounts, and this one strikes me as quite plausible, the Ark was hidden in a cave. And that's a logical place if you're trying to hide something from conquering invaders, put it in a cave. That's what the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls did in the Jewish War of the AD 60s. The Romans were coming in, they were stomping everybody, and so they took their sacred library and stuck it in a cave where it remained until it was discovered in the 1940s. So the Ark could be in a cave somewhere. And there are accounts of that being the case from the ancient world, including a letter that is prefaced to the book of 2 Maccabees, which says that according to the traditions that the letter author is aware of, uh, the um, prophet Jeremiah took it and hid it in a cave. But it might not exist anymore because 2,500 years is a long time. And so it could have been, you know, broken up in the intervening time, or it could have simply decayed because it was made out of acacia wood. And wood, if you put it in a watery environment, so if it was a cave that had water in it, it might not survive 2,500 years. That's yeah. one of the reasons we find so many ancient manuscripts in Egypt, because it's dry there. Yo, but, yeah. we don't, but we don't find ancient manuscripts like that, not ones that old, in Europe, because it's wet there. And Israel has some dry areas, but it's also got some wet areas. So the question of where the Ark of the Covenant is, is an open question, as is the question, does it exist at this point? But um, it is a subject I'll be looking into in the future. Uh, some people say, though, that it's in heaven, that that you get that. Every well, now and then. this is this is based on Revelation, where the book of Revelation depicts God's temple in heaven being opened and the Ark of the Covenant is seen there. Um, that may not be the physical ark, though, because God has a heavenly temple, oh. and so it could have a heavenly ark, just like there's an earthly ark, I mean, earthly temple.
All right. I got a question that I'm kind of actually looking forward to from Nicholas for okay. weird for weird questions with Jim, Jimmy Akin. And uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say people's last names. Do you want me to say their last names? Because I don't mind. Yeah, I, I would. I would. Now we'll just not. say. Yeah, we'll just say Nicholas. All right. Uh, uh, this is what Nicholas says. How about in the future? If modern medicine could bring back people after death, what would happen to their soul when they were dead? What would happen to the soul once they were brought back to life? Now, that's a great weird questions for Jimmy Aiken question. Well, the uh, we can bring people back from clinical death now. So beginning in the mid 20th century, it became possible to do that with, uh, you know, electrical cardiac stimulation. So even after people had suffered cardiac arrest, we could shock their heart back into action and save them in a bunch of cases where previously their death would have been irreversible. And when we did that, they would you know, come back from clinical death and they would have the same memories and the same personality and all indication is they're the same person with the same soul in as part of these near these uh, in close brushes with death. People would also frequently report that they were conscious during the interval between clinical death and resuscitation. And that led to um, what are called now near death experiences or NDEs, which are quite common. Um, they occur in a notable fraction of people who experience clinical death and then get brought back. And they report things like having a review of their life, meeting a, a figure of great love that may be interpreted as an angel or as Jesus or someone like that, uh, depending on the person's religious tradition. They frequently report going through a tunnel. Uh, and seeing on the other side of the tunnel a very beautiful land where they want to stay. They also report things like floating above their bodies and looking down on the doctors working on them and stuff, and even hearing conversations that they should not be able to pick up because their heart is stopped, their brain has no blood flow, and without that, there cannot be conscious thought. So it's not like they're just unconscious in overhearing a conversation right, right. with the cessation of brain activity. They should not be able to hear this at all, but they'll come back and report things, including even things that people in the room were thinking and did not say out loud. Wow. By the way, there is a, uh, an episode of Jimmy Akin's mysterious world on near death experiences. So you may want to check that out, but it, especially if these NDEs have any validity, and that's a debated topic, but especially if they do, there's a continuity of consciousness from before clinical death through the death experience and then after resuscitation. And that would strongly suggest we've got one mind and one soul. So the question is then, well, how long would it be before the soul actually departs in death? Well, the um, in, in, in these days, we've started to get a lot better at bringing people back before you had to be brought back within just a few minutes. But now it's been discovered and this is in a book uh, called Erasing Death. It's now been discovered that if you cool somebody down, you can arrest the decaying process that begins with. Uh, cardiac arrest so that you so that their body's cells don't deteriorate 
nearly as quickly. And it's possible to bring someone back from clinical death if you do that as late as six hours later. Holy smokes. Yeah. So um, in hypothetically in the future, we could extend it even further. Well, we don't know exactly when the soul departs from the body. There are different traditions about this in uh, in in Jewish thought. There is a tradition that it might hang around for as long as three days. And in fact, in Jewish legend, there are even legends about the soul will kind of get confused and it'll wander back and forth between because they buried in the same day. You had to no refrigeration. Uh, so they would the soul will wander back and forth between its home and its grave and it's kind of confused. But then eventually when the body starts decaying noticeably, it says, OK, it's time to move on and maybe the angels carry it away to heaven or something. You'll note in John's gospel in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus on the fourth day. And this is considered a an extraordinary miracle. And various scholars have speculated that may be because of the idea that the soul could hang around as long as three days before moving on. And if that's the case, then Jesus raising Lazarus on the fourth day would mean not just reuniting body and soul, but reaching into the afterlife yes. where Lazarus's yeah. soul has already gone and right. yanking back. So that's a possibility. We don't know. I would say if at some point the flames of life are so extinguished and the soul really that the soul really has just moved on. And if you and so you have a body that is not only really dead, but really most sincerely dead. <laughs> and once that's the case, if you bring that body back to life, I mean, God could do something miraculous and send back the same soul. But you at that point likely would be doing a lot of reconstruction on the body because it's really broken down well and truly by that point. And if you're doing a lot of reconstruction on the body, like maybe using nanotechnology to repair all the cells and kickstart them again, there's a good argument. You've what you've got here is a new body. It's it's oh. the integrity with the old body is gone and you've now cobbled together a new body out of the remains and if that's the case it would presumably have a different soul even if it had all the same memories if you were able to rebuild those and so like the way modern cryogenics works it destroys the cells in your body and your brain and so the hope of people who are into cryogenics is that in the future, they'll be able to repair all that damage. But I would say if they um, if they freeze you like Woody Allen in the movie Sleeper and wake you up hundreds of years later, they're going to have done so much reconstruction on you that it's functionally a new body. It's likely to have a new soul. It might if they could recover your memories, it would have the same memories, but then you'd be like Swamp Thing who's a plant that has the memories of Alec Holland and may believe he's Alec Holland, but he's really a plant with some human memories. Uh, that is fascinating. All right. So, all right. Fair enough. So um, uh, there does seem to be a little bit like some of that cryogenic uh, hundreds of years now in science fiction, at least some of that is, the idea is, well, you want to travel from here to a star. So they just, oh, you know, freeze that's you. Just, that's just human hibernation, though. Oh, so that, that's that, a different thing. 
Yeah. And human hibernation is something we're working on now. I mean, we can right now put people in comas indefinitely. We can put them in a medically induced coma and they'll stay that way as long as we want them to. But they will continue to age. The idea behind like slower than light hibernation for space travel is you want to slow slow down their metabolism enough that they don't age, but you also don't kill them. Next question comes from Barry. Um, and I never know how to pronounce this word. You could say vestigial or vestigial, and people say it two different ways. I'm going to say vestigial, but uh, Barry wants to know, like your appendix is a vest. Well, maybe not. I was, I was just going to say, a. Uh, so first we ought to mention what vestigial organs are, and they are organs in the body that are thought to be leftovers of an earlier stage of our evolutionary history. So they used to perform a function, yeah. but they don't anymore. And classically, the Appendix is the one that people have cited because people can have their it doesn't have an obvious function and it can be removed without seriously harming a person. Turns out, actually, the appendix does do stuff. Uh, It does have some functions in the body. So it's not actually vestigial. Its function is just subtler than uh, than what was previously realized. That's why I miss it. I miss mine. uh You don't have yours? No, they took it when I was 12 years old. It oh. was going to explode, so I think they did the right thing. But um, yeah. now I found good, out. You good, know. good choice. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. Um, there are, though, other things, you know, structures in the body that don't have a present function or have a very different function than what they performed in the past, like the human tailbone. Well, guess what? We don't have tails. Most but, of us. Most of us. But the tailbone does uh, help us in small ways, like with our balance with standing and so forth. So even that has something of a continuing function. But if you go down really, really small into the cell, into the nucleus of the cell, you're going to find nucleic DNA. And a lot of a lot of our nucleic DNA is what historically has been been considered junk DNA. That is DNA that doesn't have a present function. Now we are now that we're learning more about DNA, you know, due to having mapped the human genome and having the better ability to sequence DNA and study it more. We're learning, Okay, some of that so-called junk DNA really isn't junk. It is doing stuff that we just didn't realize. But there is stuff in there that doesn't seem to play an obvious function. Like when humans get sick with a virus, um, that virus sometimes gets integrated into our DNA. And so humans and all life forms today that are multicellular have ancient viruses in their DNA that are millions of years old. They have the remnants of viruses that, you know, were around millions of years ago and, I don't know, infected common ancestors we have and they then got passed on to modern life forms. And those are vestigial, but it's on the microscopic level. So would Jesus have had vestigial parts to his body, whether it's on the microscopic level of DNA or the macroscopic level of organs or bone structures? And the answer, I think, is going to be yes, because Jesus had a complete human nature and uh, he was fully God and fully man. The fact he has a complete human nature would imply this because these vestigial things are part of human nature. They're not essential to human nature because 
to the extent they're vestigial, they're not performing a function, but they're nevertheless part of human nature. Mary would have had these. She had two normal parents, so she would have had junk DNA. That DNA would have been passed on to Jesus as part of his human nature. And so consequently, I would say, yes, Jesus would have the same kind of vestigial things that all other human beings have. That's just part of what he assumed when he assumed human nature. Uh, thanks, Barry, for that question. The next two questions involve uh, hell and then heaven. I have to confess to you, I am I find I'm more personally interested in the second of the two. I mean, you'll see why when we get there, but I'll okay. give you the first one. I'll give them to you in order nonetheless. Maureen wants to know, are we sure that Judas is in hell? What do you mean we? Because it. <laughs> what do it, you mean we? <laughs> it depends on who you ask. Some people are very sure that Judas is in hell, um, for among other reasons, because Jesus said it would have been better for him never to have been born than to betray the Son of Man, which he did. Other people, though, are not sure, and Pope Benedict XVI is one of those. Uh, he wrote about this, and he wrote about how. Even in the case of Judas, we can't be sure. And there are some reasons that he said that. For one thing, let's look at the statement that most people go to, which is that it would have been better for Judas not to be born. Okay, let's take that literally. Would it have been, what would have happened if Judas had been conceived but not born? What if he had been stillborn? The worst well, that would have happened was he could have gone to limbo, I guess, if, that, if right. that's real. Right. But and he might have even gone to heaven. Maybe very that, well. Might have, yeah. the, the church hopes there's a way for unbaptized babies to be saved. And so uh, he he wouldn't have been able to betray Jesus or commit any other sins. He wouldn't have purgatory. Right. You know, he's yeah. so. Yeah, it as well. OK, let's suppose, though, that he as happened, he did get born. He did betray Jesus. But then let's suppose he repented and ended up going to heaven. Well, having betrayed the Son of God, he would have had some really serious purgatory. Sure. To do. Yeah. And so is it true a saved Judas would have been with really major purgatory that could have been not as great as just not being born and not having that purgatorial experience? Yeah, yeah a lot of people would say, I'd rather not have the purgatory of the man who betrayed the Son of God. And so we don't really have just two options here, uh, non-existence or hell. We have these other options of a Judas who repents and also and, and does serious purgatory or a Judas who is stillborn. And so uh, you can take this passage fully literally and say, yeah, it would have been better for him not to be born either because that's better than going to hell or better than going to purgatory for a really long time. But there's another problem with saying the verse settles it definitively. Okay. Other than the logical problem we just mentioned. The verse is also based on the idea of non-repentance. And if you repent, that changes what happens to you. This is something that uh, the prophet Jeremiah talked about, where he, he talks about uh, speaking for God. He says, if at any time I declare that I'm going to prosper a nation or a city and it falls into sin, I'm going to cancel that prosperity. On the other hand, if I say I'm going to 
doom a nation or a city and they repent, I'm going to cancel the doom. And so Jesus here pronounces a doom of some form on Judas, but if but it's predicated on the idea Judas is not going to repent. If Judas did repent, then he could go to heaven like anybody else, even if he had a big purgatory to deal with. So do we have evidence that Judas repented? Yes, we do. Matthew explicitly says that Judas repented. Now, he then went on to kill himself, and suicide is objectively a grave sin. But as the Catechism says, not everybody who commits suicide is automatically lost. Even if you're in the act of committing suicide, God can, in ways known to him, provide a means of salutary repentance. Also, in Judas's day, the, uh, the fact that suicide is as gravely wrong as it is was not clearly known by everybody. And so you, you find people, even in ancient Israel, falling on their sword to have a noble death rather than, you know, suffer some atrocity. And so, so just because we understand how wrong suicide is doesn't mean Judas did. He also was acting under psychological duress because he had extreme grief for having betrayed innocent blood. And uh, I mean, that's presented as the motive of why he does this. He says, I've done wrong. I've betrayed innocent blood. He tries to give the money back when they won't take it. He throws it into the temple. And then he's so disconsolate, he goes and he kills himself. And some scholars have argued that Matthew, the evangelist, means us to see Judas as sincerely repenting. And the fact he commits suicide is a sign of how serious he is about his repentance. Now, that's not proof that right. Judas would be saved, but it does. But it's a plausible alternate that, that we need to be careful here and not simply declare Judas to be damned because the same evangelist that records the statement about it not being better or it being better for him not to be born also records he repented. All right, uh, Maureen, thank you for that question on weird questions for Jimmy Aiken Hour here on this Friday afternoon. Marcello uh, asks uh, a question about heaven then, and I, I um, had not personally thought to ask this about heaven, but I do think this is an important question about heaven, and I'm glad we have it. Uh, Jimmy, are there pizza rolls in heaven? The answer is there will be pizza rolls in heaven if you need them to be happy. Why do I feel unsatisfied? Why? I, I feel. <laughs> you haven't had any pizza rolls. I know. I, maybe pizza rolls occupy a larger position in my imagination than they should. Uh, I can go a little further into it. Okay. Uh, Jesus, Jesus tells us that in the next life, we're going to be like the angels of heaven. We'll still be humans, but we'll be like the angels in some ways. And the context in which Jesus says that is one where he's applying this principle to marriage. Yeah. And so he indicates that we won't be married in the next life because we won't need to reproduce our kind. We're going to be immortal like the angels. Well, one other thing that angels don't need to do other than reproduce is eat. Oh, yeah, and, and do we have any evidence that we won't need to eat? Well, here it's kind of mixed because we do have in both the Old and the New Testament depictions of heaven as if it's a banquet, as if it's a big party that involves eating. And it may, but um, 
because we're picturing the afterlife and it has to be pictured in terms of this life, which is the only thing we understand and can imagine, those could be symbols of greater spiritual realities. So mm. it may not be a literal banquet with literal feasting. Do we have evidence that could point that there won't be food? Well, in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul is talking about our resurrection body as compared to this body, and he quotes a, apparently a saying that some people had, which was the body was made for food and food for the body, so they're oh. like fitted together. But then he says, and God will destroy them both. So it that could be taken as evidence that we won't need to eat. Now, maybe it'll be a situation where we don't need to eat, but we will anyway as part of celebrating God's creation. And so you could have pizza rolls in that situation. But what we can be sure of is just like if you need your pet in heaven or just like if you need your dinosaur in heaven, pizza rolls will be in heaven if you need them to be happy. All right, Marcello, thank you for asking that question. Uh, Maureen asks, how do Neanderthals fit in the creation history? We don't know, uh, and I'll have to be brief on this because we're running out of time, but uh, in biology, now there, this is actually more nuanced than this, but in biology, two things are considered classically anyway to be the same species if they can breed and have fertile offspring. So horses and, and uh, donkeys are not the same species because even though they can breed, the result is a mule and, yeah. is, and mules are infertile. But all different kinds of horses, they can breed and have fertile offspring, so they're the same species. Well, it turns out that recent DNA studies uh, because we've been sequencing our DNA and the DNA of, of various uh, near humans like Neanderthals and Denisovans, um, we bred with them, our ancestors did. And so we carry within us today Neanderthal DNA and Denisovan DNA. And that would suggest from at least one perspective that they weren't really separate species. They were different races or subspecies within a broader species of man. And we don't know how the first theological humans, you know, Adam and Eve from the Bible, we don't know how they map on to paleontological history. So it could be that our first humans in the theological sense could be old enough that they include Neanderthals oh, oh. and Denisovans and Homo sapiens sapiens. Or it could be that the first theological humans came along later. And so the Neanderthals and Denisovans and maybe even some early Homo sapiens weren't theological humans, but were near theological humans that were very similar to us, but not identical to us. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thanks so much. It's always so much fun to do Jimmy uh, weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. My some truly weird questions and great answers. Uh, we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make the show possible, including Enabong A, Ryan O, Justin H, Adika L, and Tom V. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give.
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearVentoLaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. Well, we have our feedback that we mentioned that we want to get to. And our first, we're going to be talking about our two-part episodes on the Son of Sam. And the first feedback comes from Anne, who sent an email. She said, the conversion of David Berkowitz while in prison serves to remind me of the reason the church opposes the death penalty. He's not the only man guilty of horrendous crimes whose soul has been saved with time in prison. Uh, we had a lot of people who commented on David Berkowitz's conversion to Christianity, and most of uh, the people, in fact, all the ones I remember off the top of my head, uh, judged him to apparently be sincere in his conversion, which was how it struck me also. He certainly wouldn't be the only person who has had a sincere conversion in prison, The and that can be used and is used as an argument against the death penalty. The counter-argument would be that this may be the exception rather than the rule, that if you lock someone up for decades with criminals, it can have a morally corrupting effect, and it may actually harm the chances of their salvation compared to having them contemplate a, an, an encounter imminently with their, mora- with their mortality. So if, uh, if the argument would, the counter argument would be that the death penalty may actually promote people to take what they've done seriously and to repent of it before they have to imminently meet their maker, as opposed to spending decades in the morally corrosive environment of a prison with other criminals dragging them down and habituating them to patterns of immoral thinking. Uh, Walker, since our next bit of feedback via email, said, uh, in your recent Son of Sam podcast, your explanation of a revolver's mechanism contrasted it with a clip. I believe it's more accurate to describe it as a magazine, which is distinct from a clip. Walker's correct. Uh, a clip, uh, properly speaking, is what you use to load a magazine, and then you attach the magazine to the gun. Uh, then Sean sent an email. Jimmy had mentioned that the police search of Berkowitz's car was warrantless, and that was a bad idea because it could have gotten the evidence thrown out. Although this isn't my area of legal practice, searches of vehicles are an exception to the warrant requirement of the U.S. Constitution. The rationale is that the vehicle is easily movable and may be gone by the time a warrant is obtained. When I first learned this in law school, I thought I was wrongheaded because the police could simply block the vehicle from moving until the warrant was obtained. But it later occurred to me that blocking the vehicle was itself a seizure requiring probable cause and a warrant. That's the reason for the exception to the requirement of the warrant. There is not an exception to the probable cause requirement, i.e. the vehicle owner could still try to exclude evidence by showing the police did not have probable cause to search the vehicle. And that may well be the case, especially in the law today. I don't know how things were viewed in the 1970s when this occurred. Uh, it could have been different back then, or it could have been the same. Um, I do know that it was a concern that the police had that if things hadn't gone the way they did, they might have been forced to deal with a situation where the evidence got excluded. 
Chad wrote on F- uh, Facebook, is it a coincidence that this show about the 44 caliber killer is getting made on the 44th anniversary of the events? Yes, it is a total coincidence. Uh, <laughs> normally, when we do shows tied to an anniversary, I'm, I'll, I, I, I normally don't wait for particular years unless there is a um, unless there's a zero anniversary coming up. So like I waited to do the 9-11 shows until the 20th anniversary of 9-11. But normally if I'm going to do a show, I just look up and see how many years I try to put it in the same month. And to the extent I can, I'll even try to put it in the same week or even on the same day. But I just look up how many years has it been when I'm finalizing the script and slot that number in. So if this was the 44th anniversary, that was a coincidence. Uh, Philip wrote on Facebook, I thought this episode was a useful corrective to the frustrating Netflix series. However, I wish more attention had been given to the physical evidence versus the confusing eyewitness testimony. Do the crime scenes suggest a single perpetrator in terms of height, position relative to vehicles, shooting stance, etc.? Has it been positively concluded that Berkowitz wrote all the letters? Also, more about his psychological diagnosis if known would have been helpful. I do tend to think the process, church stuff, is completely overblown, as probably in the case of the Manson family as well. Yeah, I I agree with uh, with Phil on uh, many of these things. I I think that the Maury Terry's explorations of the connection to the process church of the final judgment are somewhat overblown. I can't say there was no connection, but at this point, the process church did not formally exist anymore. And so, yeah, people may have been involved, but as we pointed out, you can't just say, well, these people used to be involved with this other organization, so there's a direct, you know, strong connection here. Uh, Also, in terms of the letters, Berkowitz has said he did not write all of them, that there was input from other people. And the penmanship was very different in the second letter compared to the first letter. The Jimmy Breslin letter was a different penmanship that was so professional, as we mentioned, that they even went to DC Comics to say, does this look like the lettering of any professional letterer in the industry? Uh, in terms of the of the physical evidence, um, th- we since we didn't have photos of the gunman in the different attacks, a lot of it comes down to eyewitness testimony and how they described the person they saw wielding the gun. We did try to cover uh, a physical aspect of the crime scenes when we discussed it in that, like in this one particular sequence, the one that led to David Berkowitz being captured, there's no way he could have physically covered the distance he would have needed to in time to be the gunman in that incident. So we did try to bring in some of that evidence, but much of it, since a lot of the questions we had resolved around, was there one gunman or more? It's really the eyewitness uh, evidence and Berkowitz's own admissions that are the principal evidence we have to resolve those types of questions. Uh, Vera wrote on Facebook, I think this episode is one that piqued my interest the most so far. I've lived my entire life in a town 45 miles northwest of Minot, North Dakota. When I heard on this episode about John Carr living in Minot, I was reminded of when I was about seven in 1975. My family bought a puppy from a family in this town, and the last name of this family was Carr. 
makes me curious. Was our long-lived dog a relative of the son of Sam? The dog was very sweet and never talked, though. Well, that's good. Um, <laughs> and according to Berkowitz, uh, the the dog that he was familiar with in New York also did not talk. It just barked. And he was misunderstood as saying that it had talked. Um, the only car that I'm aware of being in Minot was uh, one of the car's sons and, or, and, or even maybe both sons. But I don't know that a family was there. So it may or may not have been related. The primary family with their father was back in New York, but they could have had, you know, cousins or something there. Soulfire2588 on YouTube wrote, this one was interesting for me because it happened right in my backyard. I grew up hearing stories from my parents about the city in the 70s and how unsafe and polluted it was, but also how much personality and uniqueness it had as a result of those troubled times. To this day, when I get on the subway with my dad, as he gets in, he almost always shakes his head and says, you cannot understand how different it was back then. He agrees that things are easily far better nowadays, but he also thinks that a little bit of what made New York City so special back then has been lost. Still, after knowing what he, they went through, I don't think I'd like to experience it, lol. My favorite story is how occasionally small patches of the river would literally be on fire due to oil slicks and pollution igniting. Yeah, it's an interesting thing contemplating the past and and even looking I'm not as old as your father, but looking back on my own life, there were differences in the culture. And in some ways, things are better now in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways, also things could be better and more interesting in the past. And uh, mm -hmm. I sometimes wish that uh, I uh, had that TARDIS that would let me go back and walk <laughs> around in the past. Yes, uh, things, some things have been lost. Let's say that. Although I, I am glad we don't have burning lakes and rivers anymore, like in Chicago and Cleveland and New York City. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Cracker. Now, now we have now we have uh, water coming out of the faucet that can burst into flames. <laughs> yes, yes, we have that. Uh, Mrs. Cracker wrote on YouTube. Thank you so much for sharing this episode. I had an up close experience with a serial killer at a property management job. One of our tenants turned out to be a Jack the Ripper-style serial killer. He had plea-bargained his first killing down to involuntary homicide. Apparently, the charge he pled guilty to did not come up in criminal background checks and allowed him to fly under the radar, enabling his killing spree for several more years. Yeah, it's always creepy when something like that happens. And thank God, Mrs. Cracker, that you were able to survive that encounter and uh, I'm glad the guy's apparently been caught now. Uh, Brooke writes on YouTube, as someone who has a complicated uh, relationship with true crimes, I would like to say thank you to Jimmy and Dom both for including episodes like this one and for not including too many of them. I find cases like these interesting and sometimes go on true crime binges on YouTube. But I know it's time for the binge to be over when I start to get a little depressed. A little bit is fascinating, but indulging too much can definitely skew your perspectives on danger, human nature and the frequency of such things. Yeah, I agree, Brooke. I am also interested in true crime, but I uh, there's a limit to how much I want to do, even in my own reading at any one time. And it it is necessary to take breaks from such things if you want to take, if you want to retain a healthy perspective on, okay, I know this exists, but that doesn't mean it's common and, I, and calibrate your own 
level of concern about it. Uh, we heard from a lot of people who appreciated the inclusion of the Son of Sam uh, episodes. We got a lot of feedback on them, actually. And a bunch of people said, thank you for keeping it clinical and for not dwelling on the sensationalistic details. And thank you for having it as part of the mix, but only as part of the mix of show topics. Right. Uh, DT on YouTube wrote, we were in Queens as dumb kids yelling out, we will catch you, Sam, by the cemetery. Yeah, I don't know that I would have advised that. Uh, but as as DT says, one does some things as a kid that may not be viewed as advisable in later life. That's right. I tell my kids, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. <laughs> so, uh, Michelle writes on YouTube, thank you. I started out with a no way. I remember that. He was solo attitude. Now I'm gobsmacked. Yeah. And like Michelle, we had a, uh, quite a number of people contact us who said that they initially had uh, had uh, ha held the accepted standard account that he was a solo killer and had revised their view in light of the episode of the evidence we presented in the episodes. Not everybody was convinced, but the majority of people were. And this was something that I turned around on as well. I went into my research on this, assuming that it was a solo killer. And I became convinced by the evidence that, no, this was a cooperative thing. And that will have an impact on how I evaluate some future cases where similar possibilities have been raised. It, if it looks like, okay, in this case, we had a, uh, a, a legitimate cooperation among people. That means that it may be more possible than I previously would have supposed in other cases as well. Excellent. So that's all the feedback we have this time. Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines? Well, we have a space theme this time for our headlines. We're uh, going to outer space. So you know how in Star Wars, Luke's home planet Tatooine has two suns. And uh, you can see the double sunset happening as the music swells. And the way they achieved that was by filming in Tunisia at two slightly different times of day with a double exposure. So you got the sun in the sky twice. Well, um, planets do circle two stars sometimes. And recently, we may have found the first circumtriple planet, a planet that uh, circles three stars. Uh, so uh, check out the link on that. Also, we seem to have found the largest comet ever. Um, the nucleus of this comet is something like 100 miles across, and it is like a thousand times bigger than the nucleus of any comet we've seen before. So it is the Monster Godzilla Comet. Unfortunately, it may not put on a big show for us because if I've read correctly in other stories, it's not going to get closer than like the orbit to the sun than the orbit of Saturn. Um, so it doesn't look like it's going to come into the inner solar system, but it will be an impressive sight for people using telescopes and stuff. And it is the largest ever found. So check out the uh, article on that. Excellent. So before we find out what we're going to be discussing on our next episode, I do want to rem remind you to like this episode on Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter. And be sure to send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world. And since we're now doing videos here on YouTube, be sure to do all the YouTube things like comment, subscribe, and hit the bell notification so that you don't miss videos. Uh, we're trying to grow our channel, so we really appreciate it when you subscribe. 
Definitely, definitely. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, it's been a while since we've had an episode dealing with extraterrestrial life. So next week, we're going back to outer space and we'll be talking about the possibility of actual real world life on Mars. Ooh, cool. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash science.